Hey everyone, it's Ep Percussion Podcast. It's episode 302. This is one of our roundtable discussions. We are recording October 10th, but you're probably listening on October 21st, which is our release date. So hey out there, I've got my usual crew. I've got Ksenia Komjanovic. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Casey. I've got Carly Vigna. Hey, Casey. And I have no Ben Charles. So hey out there, Ben. Why aren't you here? And no response because he's not here as expected. Okay. Well, excellent, excellent. Hey, you know, we, we do the news right now, but um, I first say we just found out yesterday that uh, Christopher Dean passed away, the very great composer, percussionist, teacher. Uh, Christopher Dean, I just, I, uh, I crossed paths with Christopher Dean many times. He was always so, so kind to me and uh, sad to hear he passed away at 63 and Ben studied with him. So I imagine we'll talk about Christopher Dean more in depth. And we have talked about him on the show and we've mentioned him probably two dozen times as his rep came up. And uh, I guess I would just say that, uh, yeah, I, he, the most memorable thing aside from, I, I really, really like Christopher Dean's music and always have, but I remember a few basics ago, he was giving a talk about just composition and kind of the state of things, like kind of where we're at. And, and something that I think I'll never forget is he had mentioned that we need to keep pushing. You know, he feels like we, we used to push so much and try to do new things, try to be progressive, try to explore territory that hasn't been explored before. And he wishes we would keep doing that. And I thought that was really cool. So I don't know, anyone else want to say, uh, I don't know, any anything, even just like if it's a favorite piece or something about Christopher Dean while we're chatting about this? I'll go first. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, sadly, but um, I saw all the beautiful tributes that people posted all over social media. And I thought that this one was um, just very... Well, heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. So Hayden Rackley said how on September 6th, so on Labor Day, was the final day I had the pleasure of spending my time with you, Professor Dean. The both of us were absent from our percussion departmental recital that past Friday, so we both missed the memo that lessons were canceled and campus was closed on Labor Day. We didn't realize it until we got to your office and saw that it was a ghost town, but we said, screw it and had a 90 minute lesson just for fun. We got to talk grad school, orchestral junk, and random stories you remembered off of the smallest tangents possible. Afterwards, we walked back to your car together and I'll never forget that last conversation we had. You were excited for me. You were eager to dive into my preparations for grad school considering all of the time we had in front of us. I know you were ready to just torture me with mind numbing fundamental lectures so I could just play that perfect piano pianissimo snare drum roll. But most importantly, I appreciated your admiration for how far I've come since starting at UNT. You saw how unsure, insecure, and how I lacked confidence in myself when I first walked into your office, yet you saw what little talent I had and you pushed me to capitalize on it. You told me it was quite a jump going from our first day of timpani lessons to playing Beethoven fifth this semester and you were excited to go see it. I never did find out if you were able to watch it, but I just hope you knew that it went great. And then he said, you know, wow. thanks for believing in me and so on. Just but what a person, you know, hmm. what a wonderful guy. Wow, that's really cool. I've been struggling with what to write. And now I know I have to struggle a little more because that was that was really good. Hayden showing, showing everyone up. 
There have been some really beautiful things written. I don't have any pulled up in front of me, but it's been touching. I never met him myself either personally, but certainly enjoyed his music. And it seems like he's touched so many lives over the years. I'm excited for the, uh, the, tr the tribute concert or the, uh, the celebration next uh, April. I think that's going to be super awesome. I, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Manny. That's that's a good plug. Yeah, con tribute concert coming up in April at UNT. Yeah, good call. Yeah, all I have to say is uh, I think he really helped push like vibraphone repertoire forward. Um, there's not a whole lot of that going on, and as a vibraphone player, like seeing you know Morning Dove Sonnet and another one that I don't see played very much. I can't even pronounce it. The apocryphal still life. Apocryphal still life. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've I haven't really seen it played live, but it has some really cool effects that Dave, I think are really nice. David Friedman, the the very fabulous, I mean, just all star vibraphone. I mean, you know, wonder of the universe. Uh, said in a, a Facebook thread, uh, Chris Friedine is composed my favorite vibraphone piece. And my first thought was like, I wonder if he means Morning Dove Sonnet or Apocryphal Still Life. I'd love to know which one. So yeah, yeah, find out someday. Cool, cool. Well, hey, it is release date is October 21st. So Carly and I, we kind of double dipped on music history. What happened today? Carly, do you want to go first? So um, what I found is that in 1959, on October 21st, uh, the Guggenheim Museum opened in Manhattan. And as many of you probably know, the Guggenheim Museum displays works from some of the world's most celebrated and sought after contemporary artists. So I'll give you a, a little bit of the backstory in this museum. Um, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation was founded in 1937, and the organization's first venue for art exhibition was called the Museum of Non-Objective Painting, and it opened in 1939. So I'm wondering, have you all heard this term before, non-objective painting? What's that mean? Well, that's what I was wondering. I thought it was kind of like, what is that? Okay. Um, so objective, so like non-objective? Well, that's what I thought, like objective versus subjective. I'll get to that. But so non-objective art could also be called non-representational art, which um, basically is like art that doesn't represent or depict any like physical identifiable person, place, or thing. Um, so in other words, the content of the art is in its color, shapes, texture, size, and scale, and we're not depicting, you know, a bowl of fruit or something like that. Um, so I think abstract art might be the term that um, us lay people would use for this, at least today, but um, the term made me think of objectivity versus subjectivity, and so I was kind of thinking like, non-objective art maybe is viewed as subjective, meaning that the viewer's personal feelings or experiences or opinions are injected into the art, which I thought was kind of interesting to think about. Um, but anyway, the Guggenheim Foundation opened this Museum of Non-Objective Painting in 1939, and it featured Guggenheim's personal modern art collection, which was kind of eclectic, and included many works by Kandinsky and some of his contemporaries, um, Rudolf Bauer, Alice Mason, Otto Nebel, and Rolf Scarlett. And it soon became evident that a permanent home was needed for this museum. Um, it was in kind of a, a temporary place. And so in 1943, the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright was commissioned to, to design what would become the permanent Guggenheim Museum. Have any of you been there? Looks yes. like any, yeah. Yes. yeah. It's yes. awesome. I, I love it. I mean, it's a, 
it is a very special experience how the space can I mean, we can shape it like, well, he can shape it, Frank Lloyd Wright, and then that space can shape us. And there's something about that spiraling way of, you know, ascending and, and seeing the art that's just so much more precious um, than simply going down some narrow hallways and then looking at it. It's it's really amazing. It's one of my right. favorite things. Oh, cool. I have to go. I haven't been. Um, so this this actually ended up being the final major project of Frank Lloyd Wright in his entire life. Um, it was also one of his longest going projects and one of his most popular projects. So the building opened, like I said, on October 21st, 1959. This was actually about six months after Frank Lloyd Wright passed away. Um, so it was, you know, the last 16 years of his life was spent working on this. Um, and Ksenia, like you said, the, the interior of the building has this huge atrium. It's 92 feet tall and there's this gradual ramp. And as you're going and looking at the paintings, you're walking slowly, but surely up towards, there's a, a dome at the top of the atrium. Um, and the exterior of the building features these curves, like they're kind of like, it's more organic, um, that were, and still are really like a, a stark contrast to, you know, typical buildings into the kind of grid of, of New York City. So it's really a remarkable building. So if you are watching on YouTube, you'll be able to look at some pictures of the Guggenheim that just looks super cool. This first picture is the exterior. Um, it looks pretty old based on the cars there in the, in the photo. There's kind of an aerial view. And here's what we're talking about, this atrium where you can walk around and look at the paintings. This is, I think, a view from below looking up at the dome in the atrium, which is, that's pretty neat. Bunch of people. Remember when a bunch of people crowded in museums? <laughs> very, very they all are. <laughs> and so then they had, it looks like they have super cool, um, you know, installations here in the dome too. This one has some uh, interesting spiky cars hanging from the ceiling. Pretty cool. Um, wow. Big parties also can be hosted there. Looks like, yeah. Yeah, this is kind of like their dining venues. But um, anyway, it looks really cool. So when things continue to get back to normal, it'd be nice to go visit. This is when it's under construction. So anyway, that's a little bit about the Guggenheim Museum opened um, 1959. Wow, thanks, Carly. I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't know any of that. And I feel like I've seen that photo of the atrium but actually i feel like i've never even seen the exterior of it and it seems so distinctive and iconic and yeah interesting of course the guggenheim fellowships and awards like i've heard of those but um yeah very cool um well i'll keep mine kind of brief i have two first performances for you today uh, one is shostakovich fifth symphony 1937 premiered today so this is kind of the piece he wrote during what was known as the Great Purge under Stalinist Russia. So he was a member of what was called the Association for Contemporary Music, the ACM. And at the same time, Shostakovich is a member of the Russian Association of Proletarian Musicians, which is like what he probably kind of had to be a member of. And as you can imagine, the Association for Contemporary Music was very progressive, very avant-garde, you know, much more in favor of new music, whereas the Association of Proletarian Musicians is much more conservative, wants art and music to be much more accessible, much more nationalistic. 
And the, the Great Purge was this time period from 1936 to 1938 where nearly 2 million artists, I think it's like 1.7 something million uh, artists, politicians, activists, writers, reporters were uh, executed by Stalin. And up, up, up until this point, Shostakovich was good at balancing, like being a member of both associations. And then he got this really historic bad review of his opera Lady Macbeth, which I think was in 1936. And that review came out and then all of a sudden, like he was uh, a bit on thin ice. And then The Purge happened, which he re released the Fifth Symphony right in the middle of it, 1937, and survived it. And he got uh, great, you know, acclaim from from both associations and uh, managed to like, you know, really possibly uh, dodge uh, a bullet on that. Second first performance is 1975, Scott Joplin, what's commonly known as the ragtime opera called Tree Monisha. So this was the first performance. This piece was actually first published in 1910. I guess Scott Joplin sent the manuscript to a publisher. They published it. He sent it off for a review and it got like a glowing review in way back in 1910. And uh, the review said it was a, quote, entirely new phase of musical art and a thoroughly American opera. So the theme and message of this is uh, kind of what is the way forward for black folks in America now? And how, how are they supposed to kind of join the mainstream and kind of shed the ways of the old world and old superstitions? And of course, this is historically significant because of its use of ragtime, and it's really like the first opera to, you know, utilize ragtime as its as as a common element. Uh, he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for Tree Manisha in 1976 after his death. And let's see. Oh, another main message within this is that the way forward is through education for both men and women. So really progressive opera in a, in a lot of different ways by music standards, but also just like, um, yeah, for, for social reasons as well. So that's what happened. Thanks, Carly, um, on October 21st. And so... Hey, Roundtable, it's good to see you. We've got Jade, we've got Manny, we've got Chris. Thanks for being here. And I'm not entirely sure what we're gonna talk about, but I know, Jade, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it to you first. You just moved to a new city, and I think we're gonna talk a little bit about like what the heck a percussionist or musician is supposed to do when they just arrived to a new city. Can you tell us just briefly what's going on? Yeah, well, I just moved to Canada, actually, Vancouver, Canada with my uh, partner as she's studying, getting her DMA in piano performance. That's a new country. Yeah. Did okay. I say city? Did I say country? <laughs> I said city. I said oh, okay. city. Same thing. I mean, it is a city too. It's true. Um, yeah. So, you know, she's pretty well established. She has like an academic backbone and structure to kind of bounce off of and have all the re these references, but I don't know hardly anyone outside, like in the city at all. And from what I can tell, the, the scene's a little, a little smaller than I expected from a city. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing going on. I just don't know how to plug into it. So I would really love any, um, if we could have a discussion about like, I mean, of course, I go to concerts, I, I meet people. But beyond that, what, what else can be done to kind of plug into a new scene? 
Well, one takeaway I keep getting, and we definitely got it with Chihiro, uh, an episode, maybe it's an episode or two ago now, but uh, it, it definitely takes some years. And I know she said exactly, you know, yeah, go to concerts, meet the performers. If there's, uh, you know, if you want to play in a certain group, try to try to talk to the performers afterwards, try to get lessons with the performers. You know, it seems like a, um, an important connection is, is through lessons. You know, if you want to play timpani with this group, study with the timpanist of that group. Um, yeah, what else you all? I think we all have various experiences uh, with this. So, um, I, first of all, how are you handling the language barrier? That's the important one. In, in Vancouver? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just say a boot and that, that takes some getting used to, but. A boot. And if you've seen, if you've watched South Park, you're already yeah. primed for all of this. Already. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what right. about the that culture shock? Like, aren't people super nice? That's right here. That's what I thought. Um, I can't say it's that different, and maybe it's a Vancouver thing. Maybe but, they're uh, not that nice. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot on, on, on my first <laughs> month. You know, no. I can't shoot myself in the foot in Canada. They don't anyway. <laughs> Anyway, um, no, that's that's all good. I think, first of all, it's great that you have uh, your partner there who is plugged into the academia because that will eventually trickle down to uh, you. So be present there, you know, being a su supportive partner yourself and then just go and see like, oh, could I please be introduced to the percussion studio and go see a concert and da, da, da. Um, a piece of advice that worked for me when I moved to Hong Kong is, or several of them. First of all, uh, I'm going to say this and you're going to know this and it's probably going to be really hard anyway, is just accept the fact that it's going to be really bloody hard for six months, mostly emotionally. Um, it might be also difficult like financially and um, creatively because your outlets have changed, but it will get better. It just takes a while for any scene to recognize you and adopt you. So what I did when I moved to Hong Kong is that I did a Google search. I had a few names to start with, um, but and I reached out to them immediately like, oh, so and so told me to meet with you. Can I see, you know, and I, I knew about those people before, but then I did a Google search and I was like, OK, what are all the percussion? I don't know, communities, associations, schools, uh, venues, like everything that hosts stuff. I just put all that stuff in my calendar and I went to every single recital and concert genuinely to see like what's up in Hong Kong. Um, then I reached out to people and like the heads of those organizations, especially those that I knew did some educational stuff. And I said, hi, I'm new. Um, I'm here to work at this school, but I would love to be involved someday. So just, you know, I'm, I'm here, please, please keep, uh, keep an eye and not keep an eye out, but sort of keep me in mind. And I went to this event of yours and I thought it was great. So if there's anything I could ever do to contribute to your future events, please let me know. Um, I was also very open with the community, at least with the younger folks, like the folks that I found were in a similar situation. They just graduated. They were in the US or somewhere. They studied in Canada and then came back to um, Hong Kong. I was very open about how sad I was. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm new here. And uh, I don't know how it was after you graduated, but I would really, really like to find some purpose. And I'm used to other levels of, you know, performance rhythm and so on. And I just, can you help me? I didn't have instruments or anything. So just 
like saying that stuff out loud, not being like, <clears throat> I'm actually, my, my schedule is pretty busy, um, but I'll try to squeeze you in. <laughs> um, I think people can relate to that stuff. Um, and then eventually it sort of, you know, started, it was bit by bit of like, okay, you can do a, a little thing here, there, and eventually you can also, because you saw that the community um, is a little bit less active, or at least what it seems on the surface, take the reins and organize whatever the hell you like. Maybe you want to do an Uxuit in freezing cold. Maybe that would be really interesting. And that's a way to just invite everyone and do something nice for them. Um, a thing that I always say, I'm going to close with this, is give what you need. You need more activity. You need a way to connect with people. Provide that for them however you can. And sometimes all it takes is like being outdoors and everybody brings a drama symbol and you start off that way. Now I pass it off to Carly for some smart advice, actually. Well, that is a beautiful thing. I always think about that when I'm, you know, I always love to have an opportunity to recommend other people for gigs because then they're likely to return the favor. Um, yeah, every, everything that Xenia already said is, is wonderful advice. Um, I think here's probably the biggest thing for me is be as awesome as you can all the time because the music world is so ridiculously small. Actually, I'm finding moving back to, you know, the DC, Virginia, Maryland area after, gosh, the last time I lived in Maryland was more than 10 years ago. Like there are people that I haven't talked to in 10 years, but that are like, Hey, I remember you and, and reestablishing contact contact. So, you know, I'm, I'm like thankful that they remember me in a positive way because it was so long ago, but um, your reputation, like word of mouth is always recommendations from other people is always the biggest thing that, that people are going to go by when asking you for a gig or recommending you for teaching or anything. So that's the really, really important thing. And, and if you don't know very many people, I think you've got to have a strong social media presence and website where they can go like, you know, who is Jade Hills? I want to check out all the awesome stuff he's doing. And, and you do like on your, on your social media, that's great. Um, Chihiro talks a lot. She's got a video a video and article. I can't remember right now on cold calls. And she talked about it a little bit, two episodes ago too, um, about picking up the phone and just calling somebody and saying, Hey, you know, I'd really love to get together with you. Can I watch your show? And in Broadway, I think there's this culture of you go and sit in the pit if you're interested in seeing what it's like. And then that might be one pathway to being able to play on Broadway. But um, I mean, I, like that, that works everywhere. I think calling or emailing um, what you have to be careful of is don't call or email, or even when you meet somebody in person and just sound desperate and be like, I really need some work. Like, can you recommend me? You know, it's, I think that can put a lot of people off um, and it's gotta be, it's gotta be really genuine. I think, um, I think when Julie Strom was on the podcast, she talked about, um, you know, reaching out to somebody and saying things like, like, you know, Hey, I really enjoyed your YouTube video that you posted recently. That was really great. I admire your work. I'd love to get together and have a coffee and don't say things as direct as, wow, I'd really love to have some work. Um, what can you give me? What can you do for me? Um, and then, yeah, what, what Ksenia said too, is great that, that create opportunities, create opportunities for other people, create opportunities for yourself. Um, we've all learned this through the pandemic that like all, all, maybe all of our performance was taken away. And if we didn't just continue creating our own opportunities, we could be sitting and being like, what's the point in playing or practicing? Um, and there's always going to be an element of luck to it. I think everybody says that when either you land a position or you, you become active in a freelance career, there's an element of being in the right place at the right time and 
doing all these other things, like being awesome as, as often as you can. I agree with everything Carly said, but I failed to ask you the question, which is how do you wish to be active in Vancouver? Because it's not the same if you want to be, I mean, there's a lot of crossover, but like, what would you like to do? Sure. I mean, ideally, it would be great to play like chamber music with other percussionists and, and teach. And there's enough, there's enough schools and, and people here definitely to teach. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the academies or, you know, the like establishments that do lessons don't have the facilities or the want to take on percussion students. Like, I, I'm just not understanding kind of what the attitude is in the area and I'm, I'm doing the cold calling I'm, I'm asking and there just seems to be like a hesitance to even hire on a percussion faculty. It's, it's odd. We were talking to Joe Porter, who was telling us how it was uh, different in Canada, how just percussion is not quite as sort of everywhere as we're used to being in the US. But, you know, if if you're looking for chamber opportunities, then I'm sure that you can find out just you can also look backwards, see what concerts people did, like you can browse through Facebook events and see what concerts people did in the city in the past year, because people move obviously in and out. Um, and then reach out to them, sort of be like, okay, befriend them on social media or follow them, see what they're doing. Um, you could also ask for advice there and just be like, hi, I'm you know here, I, I'd love to do this and that. Uh, you can, I'm assuming you can bring uh, some chamber partners from the US. That was another thing that I did in Hong Kong. So. I showed up, I did some free work with an organization happily. And then they said, oh, we saw that you have this duo. Would that be a possibility? And I said, that'd be great. I'd be happy to work for free myself. If we can just bring him over, like pay for his ticket and, you know, we'll, we'll room him up. We'll board him up. That's no problem. Just like, let's, let's get him over. And that was awesome because we offered concerts and masterclass and all of that stuff for like an airfare. Um, so, I mean, you could be what's really cool about it, which is that you bring your connections from the US, which not everybody has. And I mean, it's a hop, skip away. <laughs> it's not that far away. So it's it, it could be even not that financially challenging. Uh, go ahead, Manny. Um, yeah, uh, one thing I was gonna say, I'm, I'm in a similar boat um, as Jay, because I'm living in like in the Austin area. It's not quite the same. I, I know I know some people in the area, but it's it's hard getting that first just that first step in the door. And um, I, what I ended up doing is I ended up contacting uh, Thomas Burrett. You know, I just figured if there's got if there's one beacon of light in the area, it's got to be uh, him. And you know, he basically said, "Reach out and play play to your strengths." So I would also like to be doing that same thing too. I'd love to be playing in chamber groups and doing that sort of thing, but. It's Texas and it's marching season and it's Vantober and like, you know, drumline was the first thing I really excelled at. So like, I'm trying to play on on those strengths that and hope in hopes that they will lead me to other places. Um, and the cool thing is, I think we all we all know either a lot or some some degree of all sorts of all aspects of percussion. Like, let's say a program needs a steel pan group. Like, I don't play steel pan but I'd probably like suck it up and try and try my best just to, just to get the name out there and build those connections. So that's, that's something that I'm definitely trying to do right now. And I think, you know, it could be helpful. You hear that Ksenia? It's Texas. How's marching? 
<laughs> well, okay. See, that's the thing. I am in Texas and I'm in a, at a school that doesn't have a football team. How are your Radom accused? <laughs> Beautiful, gorgeous, heavenly. <laughs> but point is, I think of that as like, we are a, a very cheap conservatory for percussion. You know, you might think of us as like, oh my God, we don't have a marching band. But for kids who would rather go to a conservatory, we're a really, really cheap local version of it. So, you know, um, a story again that I always say is I paraphrase it every time, but two shoemakers went off into the world, came back or rode back, you know, and one of them said, oh my God, this is a disastrous situation. We we got there and none of these people wear shoes and I'm not going to be able to make any money. So I'm coming back. And the other one said, amazing news. Nobody has shoes. So I'm going to be huh. able to make so much. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? What is this? What is this? It's, uh, no, that's great. That makes, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. I was just going to say on the, on the matter of cold calling, has anybody ever been in that job interview where, you know, even if it was like, you know, for Old Navy or McDonald's or just like, you know, any job where they seem to really care, like if you could start next Thursday, like they're like, oh, great, cool, cool. Yeah, you seem fine. Can you start like Monday? Are you, could you start mm -hmm. Monday? Like they just need someone Monday or whatever, like yeah, immediately, yeah. like that is a huge determining factor. I, I know in, in higher ed, at least, um, I, I don't think it hurts to send your resume to department chair at the various places, community college, what, whatever there is, you know, whatever you think you would be willing to go to and just say, hey, here's my stuff. Because it, it seems like every semester at any given department head is trying to fill that one ear training course or trying to fill that one you know, remedial theory course or, or something, you know, it might not be percussion in the beginning. Uh, but gosh, I mean, some of the most satisfying teaching I've ever done has not been percussion teaching, you know, it's been classroom music appreciation course for non majors. Like, I mean, I love teaching that that was like, super, super fulfilling and satisfying. And um, I feel like it it is kind of a cold call, but it's it's just like, hey, here's a resume. And if they just, you know, they're going to get some email from one teacher that's like oh yeah I, i'm moving i can't teach that ear training course and, and they're gonna go like oh crap i gotta fix that and i have a million things to do today and like oh look there's a resume right here and that, that that's kind of that same thing of like hey can you start on monday you know that so i i wouldn't i wouldn't under underestimate that you know and um and again it might just take a while for that opportunity to come up and and, and another thing you know we hear that all the time you got to be in the right place at the right time it's like well the way you increase your chances of being in the right place at the right time is like be as many places as you can and if that just means your resume is on a desk uh, at the right place at the right time then it, it might uh, result in something do you play with your partner we have a project that's kind of going on, but she's been so wrapped up in like solo repertoire and, and stuff like that, that uh, we haven't really found the time, but I would like to do more stuff with her again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's one thing that also you can um, be introduced and then not have to piggyback off of her contacts, but simply, you know, make your own friends within the academia. Um, 
And even if it's something, if, if you realize that a big project is not possible, so maybe you're going to do miniatures and maybe you're going to commission some local composers to write you one minute sight readable pieces, like whatever, you know, toy yeah. music. We were talking about how uh, doing stuff for children on YouTube is amazing. Whatever it is, just make sure that you understand that your framework is what is supposed to unleash your creativity. Don't let it feel like the walls are closing in. Just, okay here's the framework and i attack we have 30 seconds to record something with you let's do it we're gonna do 30 second things yeah love that um i i guess a follow-up question would be like how, how do you all finance that though like how, how can you book venues and and stuff you know to support that sort of thing without the reliable income of like a teaching position or or something like that i assume grants um i mean i assume a lot of people do do grants um or they they have another job um, yeah. um while they're doing those things yeah or i imagine there may be some places that are willing to host a recital um for little or no cash or maybe you know donations or ticket sales something like that I was always jealous of uh, people who grew up in churches. You know, I grew up in Utah. It was like really, oh yeah, because then you just said it, churches. And I didn't grow up a, a member of any church. But I was so jealous of my friends. Like they're just like instant, like 200 people at your recital, instant venue, instant catering, like, like just like, you know, like just like cool community. You know, I don't know. I don't really know how to how to take advantage of that in your in this particular case, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I, Chris. Uh, I you know I have a full time job of teaching, so I love to perform, but I don't always actively seek it out because my availability is pretty inconsistent. And um, for me, sometimes I have to create those opportunities for myself because I I do want to play and. You know, I'll get together with a friend and say, hey, let's go play at the Children's Museum just to entertain some kids and have something to do creatively. And they're always looking for opportunities and they, they don't pay, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a ton of fun and people see you, you know, a lot of parents see you and people who are doing all kinds of different things as day jobs. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I'll, I'll get together with some, some friends and during the holidays, we'll play a bunch of holiday based quartets and you know we'll, we'll go to some churches and then people at those churches see you know see us and then they'll ask us to play for something else and we get lots of opportunities just just from doing stuff that we did for fun we'll get other opportunities to play play for fun so um I, the other thing i just wanted to, to jump on was that the taking lessons is is really great and just doing things with other people um even if it means maybe you're you're paying them for that opportunity to learn from them. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of times when I get asked to perform, it's because somebody said, hey, I know somebody. And, you know, I got invited to do it because, like I said, I'm not always actively looking for that. Um, but doing things with other people just goes a really long way. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to do it for free. Um, I, I work at a school and I get a lot of cold calls for private lessons and people looking to 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 teach, but a lot of times they're, you, you can tell that they're not gonna be there for the long-term. Like, hey, I'm a you know, master's student here and you know, I'd love to teach private lessons. Yeah, but you're not gonna be here two years from now. So um, you, know, you really have to think reasonably, like what can I offer as a service? 
um, to the community that, that I want to invest in me, what can I invest in that community? And maybe it's not gonna be that thing that you really want to do, but it could be, you know, that jumping off point where it's like, well, I get to play here and here and, you know, turn down the road. Maybe that will be my visibility that leads to something else. Yeah, um, a couple of more ideas. So definitely go into churches. They always have, they have services that they need a percussionist for. It doesn't matter if they have an orchestra or not. Maybe they have a choir that needs a drummer or something, someone to play the cajon alongside. So reach out to them. They always have funding. That's pretty good. Um, think about other things you could do like yoga classes. You can accompany yoga classes with something like if you have a hang drum or something like, I don't know, a kalimba, something, you could go do something like that. Um, advertise that you are uh, offering lessons. See what the what the community has. If you're using social media, then through hashtags and all of that stuff, there's probably something, even if it's just like, oh, there's a thousand you know hits for that hashtag, like Vancouver teachers or whatever, percussionists. Um, see where they teach, see how that works out, see whether you can set up a studio in your home or teach online or whatever. Another thing that helped me was I genuinely wanted to be involved in still in everything still when I was in Hong Kong because I was just terrified of losing touch. I really missed it. So I reached out to some students at the Hong Kong University and Hong Kong Baptist, all of them. And I said, could you please just let me know whenever there's a master class so I can email your professor and ask if I can come in. Those weren't open master classes to the public necessarily, or they weren't, you know, crazily advertised, but that's how I got to see Li Biao, for example, uh, teach there because I was like, I'm gonna go and see how he teaches chamber music. Um, so I think those are those are important, but think, think outside the box, like nursing homes, you know, Kindergarten, I have no idea, like there's probably a lot of opportunities where you can start because you always have to invest some finances in that stuff. As you said, it's not it's not easy, um, but most of us have performed throughout our lives through connections. Most of us did not book a hall on our own dime because we can't afford it because it's thousands of dollars or euros or whatever. So to make those connections, think broadly what you can do. Uh, yeah. Hey, well, moving on, Manny, was there, was there something about scheduling or, uh, I don't know, something recent with, uh, you just moved as well. And I don't know, I thought you had something you were going to maybe bring to the table. Honestly, I was just curious the other, was it like two weekends ago, I was visiting George, George Mika, and he invited, um, Marco, Marco Sharipa. So I got uh -huh. to meet him for the first time and we just started talking. And I don't know how it came up. We started talking about like drum lines and how the scheduling works with the percussion studio. Is it usually a pretty good thing? Are there ever scheduling conflicts? And, and he kept on talking about how great it was. It was always a great collaboration. I kept talking about how it was not very good at LSU. I'm sure it's better now, but like it was always kind of like, oh, cool. We can't really meet Friday. Half the studios in the drum line. Like, or, oh, they've got a little right. bit of bangle brass. Okay, we, we should probably not practice that ensemble that we really need to work on that day you know just little things like that and i was just yeah. curious like how how does it work is, is it at your your schools is it is it smooth you know are there things that you really like about the scheduling things that other you think other schools can benefit from just little things like that it's super fine-tuned here um and, and it's it's really good uh however there, there's not much room just because the buildings are busy the rooms are busy so it's not like you could you know, hey guys, drumline's gonna rehearse at, you know, 
five instead of eight. It's like, well, where would they go at five? No, it has to be at eight. There's no other space or time <laughs> for for it to be. But it, it, it was nice getting this job because everything was really in place. It was very clear, like, okay, I will always schedule around that. And, and luckily, like, there's 26 in the studio right now. And um, gosh, I mean, I think even less than half of them are in the drum line. So, and the drum line here is great. I mean, I totally support it. I love it. And it's not something I have to do with them here, but I, I'm real close with all the, the marching band director, the director of bands, the staff, and our master's student who has a, the, the marching band scholarship student. They're, of course, my students, and they're connected to the drum line. So, yeah, I mean, what that staff says, like if we had to do a percussion ensemble dress rehearsal that conflicted with drumline rehearsal were, were allowed to uh, because they're there it is so so tight and um and easy like that so yeah it works works good here but i think it's also had a lot of years of fine tuning to to get it just right i think communication is the the biggest thing and i can say i have zero complaints on this at shenandoah because we currently do not have a marching band, but we are starting a marching band next year. And so just to see the level of conversations that have been happening about, you know, equipment storage and rehearsal space and scheduling and how, you know, how can we, we're adding something new and we want to make sure it doesn't pull students away from the seriousness of their studies in the conservatory. Um, and so seeing that communication happen here, I can say, I know some places it's an issue where like you're missing percussion ensemble because you're in drumline and, you know, to an extent, we all think that whatever our whatever students do with us, whatever rehearsal or lessons or coaching or whatever they do with us is the most important thing in the world. And drumline instructors think that and applied faculty think that. Um, but I guess just having a good relationship, like you were, you were saying, Casey, being able to communicate, you know, and respect, respect the other organization and students needs is, is the key. But it can be tricky for sure. It's really convenient when, because I let my students miss for things, you know, if I think they're good things. And um, it, it's really nice when you can trust your students to miss a rehearsal and they can still play. <laughs> like It's so much easier to let your student, you give your students so much leeway if they can just play their stuff. Like you know like oh if you, you yeah you always know your part yeah sure go to your whatever meeting you know at least that's that's how i feel about it but it, it, if there's ever that student that like doesn't know their thing and they're like hey i have this mandatory music ed meeting you're like what no you don't you're in, you're like like i'm like a totally different person you know to that that student and the difference is like you got to know your got to know your part you know no be prepared and you you suddenly like your your teacher and director are so much nicer to you and more lenient for all of Casey's students who are listening, that's the key. They're not listening. That's what they say. <laughs> that, uh, just Ryan, just Ryan Carlisle's listening. He's a good, good person. You know, I think there is an element of respect that's really important because there, there are some groups that will change the schedule at the last minute, or um, you know, groups that meet an excessive amount when when you're trying to look at like a balanced student and then those students having balanced lives like you know sometimes it's it's they don't trust the students to come prepared so they add time 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 and it, that breakdown of respect is i think what causes a lot of the scheduling problems and 
when a student signs up to do a group or, or whatever, like, I think it's fair to have that schedule already kind of laid out. And then it's fair to expect that they schedule around things they've already committed to, but then you can't go, you can't go and change it. And I think it's fair to expect that of your, your colleagues too, and have those courageous conversations where you kind of sit down and work it out. Well, Chris, I, I'm curious, do you find your high school kids, do they overcommit? I feel like I, I'm aware of these students that like they do two sports, two music things, ballet, chess club, and, and they come home at 8 p.m. and do their homework till 2 a.m. and then wake up at 7 to go to do it all again. They do. They do overcommit. I mean, we as a department work really hard to not schedule on top of each other. So I don't know that it necessarily causes problems for us other than we have students who are way too stressed out and overwhelmed and overburdened. And, you know, I mean, just in general, I mean, kids, they procrastinate, right? Like those, I mean, high school, college, whatever. I mean, they just haven't developed those skills yet. But I, I think the other problem is it's because they can't, they don't have the foresight to see what's going to happen later. And I think that happens when they're committing to things too. So I, I think it is a serious problem. And they're taking classes where they get tons of homework because they've got a, a rigorous academic schedule. They have a, a rigorous after-school schedule. And I think there's times of the year where they're just not healthy. It just seems it just seems like a trend. You know, and of course, I, I'm not teaching at a high school and I haven't taught high school kids for for, for some years. Um, but yeah, it, it does just seem like a common thing. Like they do so many more extracurricular activities and um I don't know. I just kind of wonder like, yeah, why is that? Why is that it happening kinda, now? I mean, to be honest, it kind of swings both ways though. Cause we have a, now we're starting to see a split where you still have the kids doing that, but then you're starting to see kids worried about doing that. So then they like do nothing, you know, and it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. really tricky and it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, post COVID now Yeah, that things are opening back up and we're worried that kids won't sign up for things because I they didn't. I've watched that, you know, like documentary, like about, I don't know, those like, you know, rich parents that cheated their kids to get into Princeton and to USC and, and all that celebrity parents that did that. But there was definitely a, a segment in there where they're saying like, okay, so you got a 4.0, what else do you do to like get the attention of the college you want to go to? And so you got like this generation of kids doing all these extra things that like they actually don't want to do, but they're just trying to like put put a, a resume forward to a college that just has like one more you know leadership activity or one more something activity and i don't know it just it just seems unhealthy yeah jade do you all adjust your like lesson plan or your curriculum for that student if you know they're like overcommitted on something do you change anything about how you're teaching that student if you can i mean I, I feel like some students if they're like super well equipped and you think okay this student by the handbook would pass you know pass all the like base level requirements of course you want every student to grow you know but if you think like oh yeah this person doesn't have any like major you know s scary things in their playing since i mostly just deal with their playing then i of course yeah yeah i would you know um because yeah at the end you're trying to look at the big picture what the student's going to be and if they're a double major um you got that student's like yeah you should be a double major you're doing both things really well and then you have the other student that's a double major and you're like yeah you shouldn't be a double major i don't see you doing either of them well 
like, and you, and you're really unhappy and you're really stressed and, you know, um, so I, of course you, you want to be as kind and forgiving and, and as helpful, but yeah, it's hard to like, at some point you think like, well, what's the more ethical thing to do? Are you doing them a favor by saying like, you know what, it's okay. Don't do music, do something else, you know? I guess one important thing that comes to mind is just balancing realistic expectations. You know, sometimes as teachers at the high school and college level, like we have an expectation of here's how far you should have gotten or an expectation of how many hours a day you should be practicing um, or all, all kinds of uh, tangible expectations that we have. And sometimes students, you know, I've had had students, maybe high school students that are super, super busy and doing this activity and this activity, and maybe they don't want to be professional musicians. Um, you know, and to have a, a conversation like if we're having like every week, the student might be less prepared than the teacher wants, and maybe they're beating themselves up like I didn't meet my hour a day practice goal or, or whatever it is. But it's like at a certain point, you just have to decide what what is realistic, what is acceptable, what is doable, and then commit to that. And, you know, I've had students, like I said, who maybe don't want to be professional musicians, who they're objective is to enjoy playing percussion and music and keep it a part of their lives but they're not auditioning for Juilliard next year um, and yeah those ex expectations are gonna be a lot different from somebody who wants to be a music major or somebody who's you know already studying at you know undergrad or graduate level as far as what what the outcome could be how dare they don't <laughs> they know <laughs> Somebody told him how tough it is. That's like my favorite student actually is the one that's like, no, it's all right. I'm not going to be a music major. I just want to jam. Can we jam for an hour every week? Yeah, sure. Totally. I don't want any assignments. If they'll just tell you that. Cool. I get it. Sorry, Ksenia. I think I, I steamrolled. No, no, but I agree. I think that is a very easy decision then to make as an instructor is like, okay, you don't have expectations of making a living out of this then let's just have fun and you don't ruin or stretch yourself you know or you ruin yourself over this but the problem becomes when folks who have many issues and this is reflected upon their mental health physical health are not meeting what we know are requirements of the real world and then how do we guide them through that without you know pressuring them more but helping them and yet there's still all this work to be done i think that is stuff that i'd like to know the answer to like what about those who wish to succeed but there's plenty of obstacles well it's interesting like what sense that what sets this benchmark and it's not universities it's the world it's like hey i want to be employed and you talk about it with diversity equity and inclusion all the time too like hey why are you guys always teaching beethoven haven't we had enough beethoven it's like well right we'd love to do that but unfortunately beethoven is on the real world auditions so it's hard it's like not responsible of us to to not teach that when we're trying to get these students employed once the real world sets the standard of we don't want to hear beethoven anymore well then we can we can do that um, and of course i know it's not an all or nothing thing like there's other places where you can substitute um, a different composer for beethoven but um yeah i think so 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 often it, it feels like this benchmark this metric is set by the university it's like it's not it's set by the chicago symphony audition list you know which is the same as the bso audition list like that's what sets the benchmark and it's like Cassini said it's once like employment becomes a factor then it's uh yeah you have a lot less uh, wiggle room yeah chris i just you know i've i've been uh reading a lot about this and we talk about this at the high school level a lot is just 
what what are the actual standards that students have to meet to finish your course or graduate from high school and there is a real world perspective to it but the other side of it is what is it to earn a degree in in performance like do you do you, is there a requirement that you have to play beethoven or is that just something that they want to be able to do and i think that there's a sliding scale of like well you need to do this to basically graduate you need to do this to say that you're a performance major but if you really want to get into an orchestra we need to get here and maybe you'll get there by the time you graduate and maybe you'll have to keep working after you graduate to get to that level but I, th I think that you don't always have to necessarily feel like, you know, maybe exposure is important, but I don't know that everyone has to finish at that level to say that they have a performance degree. There's plenty of things they could perform by not doing that, you know, and you see lots of, you know, students now creating their own chamber groups and, and solo performances, and maybe they work towards that later in their life. But it's, you know, mm -hmm. what is the actual standard of performance what is the essential stuff that they have to do and then what's the stuff that makes them better at it you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i guess i'm thinking of the student that knows like i want an orchestra job you know like like that's what i want or i would like the skills to if i someday think i want to go for an orchestra job you know two degrees later I have the the baseline the baseline stuff but yeah i think otherwise yeah i mean there's so many different avenues for employment now uh, like i never went the orchestra route you know uh, i studied a lot of that but it was never never something i you know i've never have taken even a, one real audition and um yeah i mean yeah there's 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 so many different avenues so yeah it leaves the baseline very very nebulous it could it could just be cool this you know to to have kind of like tracks and you choose the one that's appropriate and you can guide them towards where their readiness you know what level they're ready for and say if you really if you really want to push yourself go for this you know second or third track let's see how far we can get but that way they have a way to, you know that's that it's that problem of overwhelm and procrastination and that prefrontal cortex that's not developed yet that they just they don't know how to navigate it all the time um, they don't always figure it out by the end of high school and there's not really much you can do. It's like your body still has to develop there. Um, but it's, they don't know in college either. Exactly. But you know, sometimes <laughs> that's why it's nice to just kind of outline like, here's this one track, here's this other track, and here's this one. And, you know, let's see how far you can get. And we'll we'll push you, but you don't wanna you don't wanna like kill somebody's passion for it because they might end up leading to something else that, you know, helps helps our orchestras grow. Maybe they don't become the orchestra performer, but they still have a passion for it. <laughs> and then, mm -hmm. you know, that they're helping keep that thing stay alive. Well, geez, hey, thanks you all so much for uh, doing a, another round table. And um, yeah, really appreciate you all and your support of the show. And uh, yeah, George and Alan, hopefully catch you next time. And yeah, hope to catch you guys again, of course, on the next round table. And we'll catch you all for 3.0, I think it's 3.03 is next. But it's definitely Emmanuel Sejournay is our next uh, guest. So hopefully, uh, yeah, have a listen to that one. And uh, okay, cool. Jade, Chris, Manny, Carly, Ksenia, thank you all so much. Take care.